Chapter 1. When Diplomacy Fails There were many strategic and political reasons for the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Japanese military, by 1941, had already considered the actions of the United States embargoes to be equivalent to an act of war. Therefore, to achieve their foreign policy aims by the end of 1942, expansion into the South Pacific and Southeast Asia had to begin immediately. However, Despite the effectiveness of this surprising strategy in achieving their foreign policy aims, it was short-lived, and within the next two years, this advantage and initiative would be lost. A final thing to consider before we get too deep into the weeds is a quick overview of the political structure of the homeland. Channeling your Year 8 history teacher, you may remember the Japan under the shogunate topic. At the top of the hierarchical pyramid is the emperor the son of the sun goddess Amaterasu. He, and only he, is the link between the divine and the mortal plane. His word was absolute. But, and this is a big but, he does not have the power to make the government function. Below the emperor is the shogun. This is an all-powerful military dictator. He uses the authority of the emperor to control the masses, and the emperor remains in a life of privilege with the support of the shogun. Under the shogun are the daimyo, warlords who pledge support to the shogun. Finally, under that were the samurai, peasants, and merchants. This model, which applied to medieval Japan, had not dramatically changed by the turn of the 20th century. Some may argue that with the opening to the West in the 1850s and the Meiji Restoration in 1868, Japan was now liberalizing and leaving its military government behind. Unfortunately, old habits die hard. U.S. Ambassador Joseph Clark Grew perfectly described the state of the Japanese political system by the beginning of the 1930s. Japan's government was a maze with the emperor all-powerful, but with no decision-making ability, infallible, and with every action of the army attributed to his will. This resulted in a blank check for Tojo and the military elite of Japan to recreate the shogunate era. Japan's unchecked foreign policy since the beginning of the 1930s clearly revolved around an aggressive imperialist attitude. The military government under its de facto shogun Tojo desired control over the entire Pacific and many parts of Southeast Asia. The military conquest was in line with the common attitudes of the time that might equals right, and that one culture is superior overall. This attitude, otherwise known as ethnocentrism, was one being challenged by the establishment of the new League of Nations. A collaborative international body established after the runway disaster of World War I. However, this body failed to meet its simplest mandates. But at the end of it all, Japan's biggest argument was why colonization and imperial expansion was out of fashion only now. Why did the empires of Europe get to decide when the board was set in stone? As a consequence of this, Japan decided to forge a path of conquest despite the concerns of its western counterparts. Japan was, without a doubt in 1930, the dominant military and industrial power in its region. 
opening to the West for trade, rapid industrialization, and a string of military victories in the early 20th century emboldened its leaders. Japan had the strength, but this powerhouse was missing sustenance. The resource-poor geography threatened to steal Japan's destiny as the dominant Pacific power. Resources, however, could not be found to the West. Japan's occupation of the Chinese mainland in 1931 was aimed at capturing the resource-rich province of Manchuria in what is now China's northeast sector. The Japanese occupation from this point only grew, all under the justification of protecting its assets. This all culminated in a full-scale conflict between the Asian powers in 1937 in the major city of Shanghai. This latest push for expansion was met by a strong ultimatum. The United States, under FDR, implemented an embargo on all oil, rubber, and steel to the Japanese mainland. At this time, America was the factory of the world, and the embargo on trade with the resource-poor island was a death knell. Crippled by trade barriers, the military could not ensure victory over the Chinese mainland, and a retreat was a proposition completely unthinkable to a culture enshrined in the Bushido Code. With surrender out of the question, Japan set its sights on new targets in the South Pacific. Its planners landed on Malaya for its rubber and the Dutch East Indies for its oil. The only problem was that the South was home to much bigger fish. The United States operated a military presence in the Philippines, and the Commonwealth operated a military garrison in Singapore. Japan would first have to dislodge these forces before securing new resources. FDR, sensing the growing aggressive nature of Japan, decided to move the entire Pacific fleet from the west coast of America in San Diego to the shallow bay of Pearl Harbor in 1940. This provided the opportunity needed by Admiral Yamayoto to deliver the knockout blow and disable the decadent Pacific giant for at least two years and establish a defensive perimeter around the home island, stretching all the way to Australia. There was also, as we have seen so far, strong political and cultural motivations toward the sudden strike option. Pride needed to be restored and the Imperial Japanese Navy on paper was superior to the combined Allied fleet in the Pacific. If they chose to wait, the opportunity to strike at peak strength would be lost. December 7, 1941 would become, in the words of FDR, a date that would live in infamy. Speculation and conspiracy still plagues the event to this day in regards to the catastrophic failure of U.S. preparedness and military intelligence. Was it allowed to happen so FDR finally had an excuse to bring the isolationist American people into war against Hitler? While many point to this simple cause and effect, a simpler explanation suffices. What you and I can see clear as day in hindsight was at the time a true series of hubristic and unfortunate events. Here are just a few statements which would have been unchallenged on December 6, 1941. 1. The Japanese are going to strike a weak point in Indochina, but never the heart of the American Pacific Fleet. 2. It is impossible to sail an entire fleet across the Pacific under complete radio silence. No force is that disciplined. 3. The Bay of Pearl is torpedo-proof. The water is too shallow for our torpedoes. Therefore, the battleships, 
do not need torpedo nets. 4. The biggest threat to the base's air power is local sabotage. Therefore, the planes should not be in spaced-out protective bunkers. They should be wingtip to wingtip on the runway where the towers can observe them 24 hours a day. 5. No army would ever attack on the Sabbath of the Lord's Day of Rest. For the Americans, what was gospel on the 6th was no longer on the 7th. Their only saving grace was that Japan, in a flurry of success, decided to spare the giant its life by failing to locate its aircraft carriers, oil storages, and repair docks. But on the 7th, a new false certainty was created, and this time it was for the Japanese. That will be enough. The Americans are soft, weak, and unwilling to fight. Though to be fair, not all shared this certainty. I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. This was the correct assessment of Yamamoto himself.